When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, a brief history with Christine Morgan. Hi, I'm Christine Morgan, and welcome to A Brief History. On this episode, we continue with Sir Walter Besant's account of Queen Mary I of England and how her reign impacted the city of London. While there's much to be said, and at some time, dear listener, we will talk more about Queen Mary her health, and her marriage, this account is, as you know, all about London and the way her reign changed life for citizens. Let's get back into our story. Everybody knows the eager hopes and expectation with which Mary looked forward to the birth of a child. The tales of the common people about the Queen's supposed pregnancy are illustrated by a story in Hollandshed. Quote, there came to see me, whom I did both hear and see, one Isabel Malt, a woman dwelling in Aldersgate Street in Horn Alley, not far from the house where this present book was printed, who before witnesses made this declaration unto us, that she being delivered of a man-child upon Whitsuntide in the morning, which was the eleventh day of June, 1555, there came to her the Lord North, and another lord to her unknown, dwelling then about Old Fish Street, demanding of her if she would part with her child, and would swear that she never knew nor had such child, which, if she would, her son, they said, should be well provided for, she should take no care for it, with many fair offers if she would part with the child." After that came other women also of whom, she said, should have been the rocker. Quote, but she in no ways would let go her son, who at the writing hereof, being alive and called Timothy Malt, was of the age of thirteen years and upward. Thus much, I say, I heard of the woman herself. What credit is to be given to her relation, I deal not with all but leave it to the liberty of the reader to believe it. To them that list not, I have no further warrant to assure them. End quote. The same chronicler gives us a glimpse of the divided state of the popular mind on the occasion of the removal of Dr. Sands, Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge, to London to be tried for heresy. As he left Cambridge, the papists came out to jeer at him and his friends to mourn for him. When he got to London, one like a milkwife hurled a stone at him which struck him in the breast. When he came to Tower Hill, a woman cried out, Fie on thee, thou knave, thou traitor, thou heretic, for which she was upbraided by another woman who called out, Good gentleman, 
God be thy comfort and give thee strength to stand in God's cause even to the end. end when, after some weeks, they brought him from the tower to the marshalsea, the people had gone round already, and popery was unsavory. Everywhere they prayed to God to comfort him and strengthen him in the truth. In the marshalsea, Sands fell into the hands of a Protestant keeper, who gave him all the indulgence he could, and in the end, he escaped to Holland and stayed there till the death of Mary. The examples of Henry VII's reign were not likely to be lost so soon either. A lad of 18 named William Featherstone, a miller's son, was reported to be at Eltham in Kent, giving himself out for King Edward VI, who he declared was not dead at all. Was the boy mad? It is not known. He himself declared that he had been made to say this, it is quite possible that certain hot-headed Protestants thought to set up King Edward again, and so to get back the new religion. Such a thing can never be attempted without encouragement, so perhaps the lad was soft and easily molded. Being brought before the council, he rambled in his talk, wherefore he was committed to the marshalsea as a lunatic." That conclusion did not prevent them from whipping the boy all round the palace at Westminster and all the way from Westminster to Smithfield. They then packed him off to his birthplace in the north, where he might have rested in peace, but the unlucky wretch began to talk again about Edward the Sixth, who he said was still alive. Therefore they brought him up to London and hanged him at Tyburn. To return to other points connected with London during this reign, there are not many. One of the difficulties was the rush into London of Spaniards who came over after the marriage of Philip and Mary. It is interesting to note how with every consort of foreign origin, the people of the country to which he or she belonged flocked over to London in multitudes. After the Norman conquest came troops of Normans, after the accession of Henry VII came Angevins. After the arrival of Eleanor of Provence came men of Provence. And now came Spaniards. Was London then always considered a promised land to those who lived outside? It was but a poor land of promise in these years, when all the world was torn by civil and religious wars. However, the Spaniards were everywhere. Quote, the court was crammed with Spaniards, and Philip, so far from attempting to win the hearts of the English nobles, held himself aloof with Castilian ceremony. We hear little more of the Spaniards after Philip's departure. Probably they found London an unfavorable soil for permanent settlement and withdrew. The Spanish element, as shown in the names of Londoners at the present day, or in the parish registers, is small indeed. The jealousy of foreigners, especially of Spaniards, caused trouble in the city throughout this reign. There were rumors that thousands of Spaniards were coming over. The old jealousy of the Hanseatic League was renewed. The mayor gave orders that work should not be given to foreigners. They were forbidden to open shops in the city. 
they were not allowed to keep school, their shutters were forcibly closed. One feels that the situation of the foreigner in the city was anything but pleasant, especially if he were a Spaniard. The submission of juries to judges was expected in matters of treason, if not in other things. The case of Nicholas Throgmorton, charged with high treason and complicity in the rebellion of Wyatt, proves this. Doubtless, it was in opposition to the judge's charge that the jury brought in a verdict of not guilty. For this, they were summoned before the star chamber, where four of the twelve made submission. The remaining eight were sent to prison, where they remained for six months. They were then brought before the star chamber again, where they defended their finding as being in accordance with their own consciences as if juries in matters of treason could have consciences. So they were sent back to prison and only got out by paying a fine, some of 44 pounds, some of 60 pounds apiece. In 1556, the city gave Mary a loan of 6,000 pounds. War with France was declared in June of 1557. The city was instructed to put its munitions of war on a sound and serviceable footing. It complied. It raised a force of 500 men, which joined the army commanded by Lord Pembroke. In less than a month, the queen sent a letter to the mayor informing him of the departure of Philip and commanding him to raise another force of 1,000 men. After a good deal of protest and grumbling, and after vain appeals to the liberties and franchises of the city respecting the sending of men on active service, submission was made and the men were got together. This was in early August. But it does not seem that they were sent. On the 27th of August, the French were defeated at St. Quentin. Towards the end of the year, it was known that Calais was in a dangerous position. On the 2nd of January, a message arrived from the Queen, ordering a dispatch of 500 men at once. They were wanted for the relief of Calais. But Calais fell on the 7th. Then the city was called upon to furnish another 2,000 men. But on the 13th, the Queen wrote to say that a violent storm had crippled her fleet, the men were to be kept back, but in readiness. Then it was heard that Philip's forces were on their way to Flanders under the Duke of Savoy, and that the channel was kept open by a Spanish fleet. A regiment of 500 was therefore sent off to Dover in order to be shipped for Dunkirk. An attempt was made to reduce the number of taverns in London and Westminster. There were to be no more than 40 in the city, and three in Westminster, but the law was not enforced nor obeyed. In Mary's reign, we first hear of the abuse of prisons. One of the two compters then stood in Bread Street. The warden or keeper, one Richard Husbands, was accused of maltreating his prisoners barbarously, also of receiving men and women of criminal and disreputable character and giving them lodging within the prison for four pence a night. The corporation therefore built a larger and more convenient compter in Wood Street to which they removed the prisoners appointing a new keeper in place of husbands. 
In January 1557, one Christopher Draper, alderman of the Cordwainer Street Ward, employed a man to walk nightly about the streets of the ward, ringing a bell and calling on the people to take care of their fires and lights. He asked that they help the poor and pray for the dead. This was the origin of the office of bellman. Additionally, in the year of 1557, arrived the first ambassador from Russia. He was wrecked on the coast of Scotland. The Russia company sent officers into Holland with money and necessaries and with orders to bring him back to London. On his arrival, he was met by 80 merchants on horseback, richly attired with gold chains round their necks, and he was taken to a house in Highgate, where he was royally entertained for the night. The next day he rode into the city and was received by the mayor and Lord Montague, who escorted him to his quarters in Fenchurch Street. During the whole of his stay, his charges were defrayed by the Russia Company. On the 17th of November, 1558, Queen Mary died. The bonfires which hailed the accession of her sister were fires of rejoicing over the death of the unhappy queen. The whole city was united in joy, with the exception of the bishops and the priests. Not only was religion concerned, but the domination of Spain, the immigration of Spaniards, the humiliation of the country— the general rejoicing was marked by the keeping of the day of Elizabeth's accession as a holiday for 150 years to come. And thus, dear listeners, we come to the end of Besant's account of Queen Mary I. Please join us for our next installation of this series in which we step into the grand, beautiful, glorious Elizabethan age. If you're a regular listener of A Brief History or any of the other podcasts on the Tudor's Dynasty channel, I ask that if you think of it some point this week, you might leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is that you stream our podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. We're glad you're here. And until next time, I'm Christine Morgan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.